Hi, this is John and B. Joe Trimble from the Las Vegas Star Trek convention. And you're listening to Women at Warp. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jarrah. Thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have our entire crew, starting with Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi, everybody. And Grace. Hello, my star children. Amazing. And this is actually the first episode in a series that we're looking at doing on the contributions of women in Star Trek fandom. And today we're going to be focusing on a woman who played a particularly important role in that fandom, B. Jo Trimble. And we actually have an interview that we conducted with B. Jo and her husband, John Trimble, at Star Trek Las Vegas. But before we get to that, we just have a bit of housekeeping. We'd like to remind you about the Women at Warp Patreon, which is the way that we sustain our show. It helps us do things like have our audio hosting and our website hosting and get equipment. And most recently, it has enabled us to pay for some help transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible to a variety of listeners. So if you are able to help us out and want to gain access to some exclusive content in return, you can head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And we also are mostly done our conventions, but are there any convention updates we have for our listeners for the rest of the year? Grace has one. Yeah, we have Geek Girl Con coming up first weekend of October in Seattle. It's going to be very exciting. Both me and Andy are going to be there talking about the future of Star Trek as a franchise, among other things. I myself am on multiple panels, and it's just a fun con if you can make it out there. It is a very fun environment, and I cannot wait to see people there. I've never been, so I'm excited to see um, Geek Girl Con is obviously kind of right up our alley for <laughs> no kidding mission statement and interest, <laughs> so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, and that same weekend is New York Comic Con, and I will be there. We are still waiting to hear if we'll have some panels at New York Comic Con, but we will update everyone when we know. Awesome. Another just quick thing I want to talk about before we get really into the meat of the show is that For the Love of Spock, the Adam Nimoy documentary has just recently become more widely available. It was sort of on the film festival circuit, and now it's out there in streaming land. So a bunch of people watched it this past weekend, including me and Grace, and Sue watched part of it. Um, so I just wanted to check in and see what your sort of first thoughts were. were. So maybe I'll start with Grace. Um, Well, going into it, I was really expecting, this isn't going to sound too kind, but I was expecting for it to be very sort of pat on the back, sort of like, oh, Leonard Nimoy, just a perfect human being. We all love him, the end. But I was very pleasantly surprised at how how human of a look it took at him as a person, and especially with the relationship between him and his son, Adam, which was very complicated. And it's very tricky to feel like you have to err I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't entirely say your dirty laundry, but to talk about how difficult a relationship between family members can be and then to put that out in a context where you know a lot of people are going to be seeing and hearing it, I found that to be very brave and I found it to be a very, a very unflinching and very honest look at Leonard as a person, as well as how great the character of Spock has affected so many people. Awesome. And any thoughts, Sue, from the part that you were able to watch? Yeah, I would agree with everything Grace said. But additionally, I think it was nice to see a documentary about the original series era that was focused on just one character. Mm-hmm. And because usually if that happens, it's it's the whole crew or it's the main three or it's the behind the scenes. But to see how the series and the making of the series affected just one of the cast members and his family, uh, both during the filming and throughout the years afterwards, was was really interesting. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that there were some really nice moments. Uh, uh, it was it was really great. It was really like replaying Spock's greatest hits, and it definitely evoked sentimental feelings and. So that was a really lovely part. I agree. It was nice to see that it was more complicated than, you know, the the everybody's honorary grandpa that we got to know near the end of his life that Leonard Nimoy did have to struggle with some personal challenges and that 
the more he devoted to his work, uh, the harder it was for his family and that he kind of turned that around later. I think it was really powerful. I think that what I wished had been added, and I know it's hard because it's only a you know, feature length movie and it was already an hour and 50 minutes, but that there's a lot of interviews with celebrities like Jim Parsons and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Simon Pegg and Chris Pine and, and that all of that is great. But what I really wished there had been more of was interviews with fans about what Spock meant to them as a character. Um, I think particularly when Adam Nimoy asks George Takei about Kirk Spock slash fan fiction that I could he not gets... believe that was happening when it happened. It was just like, oh my <laughs> God! For sure. And it was great that it got asked, but George Takei's answer was just really simply, well, you know, gay people watched it and saw a gay relationship, and so they wrote about a gay relationship in these stories. And I think it's a lot more complicated than that, and... I know you could make an entire movie just on Kirk Spock fan fiction, but I just think that the whole movie would have benefited from a bit more interviews with especially those early years fans who were very taken by Spock writing Kirk Spock fan fiction or not Kirk Spock fan fiction, but just, you know, starting those fanzines and doing fan art of Spock and what what made him mean so much to them. Yeah, it definitely would have been nice to see more um, more just general fan involvement. We did get to see some great interviews with members of the scientific community who were inspired by Star Trek. But even beyond that, just the influence that a single character can have on just everyday people and how that can change their lives is pretty incredible. I would have liked to see some emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And hopefully in the future, we'll have a chance to dig deeper into fan fiction and even slash fiction (laughs) yes as part of this series actually exactly (laughs) yeah so let's get into our main topic for today um we just were so thrilled to be able to meet bjo and john trimble at star trek las vegas i wanted to ask you guys what did you know about them and their contributions to star trek before you met them Even I had heard of them, and I'm fairly new to the Star Trek fandom. I mean, it might not seem like it, but I've only been in it for a couple years. But even I had heard of them both because of, you know, the way that fans talk about them, and then also reading about them in These Are the Voyages, and also starting to read Star Trek Lives. You know, they were just a big part of that early fandom and had a huge impact on how Star Trek played out. So it was really, really cool to see them. But the first time that I ever heard her speak was at Star Trek Las Vegas on your panel, Jara, and I was just blown away by her and how articulate and kind she was. So that was mm-hmm. just really a highlight of the con, that that panel in general, but especially her on that panel. Like, she was just amazing. I really liked hearing her talk about DC Fontana because I think there are actually a lot of parallels between them in that they were both women during the early days of sci-fi fandom, kind of changing the landscape for women within those kinds of fandoms. And it was just, it was a really cool experience. And then meeting her afterwards and actually being able to talk to her one-on-one was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked a little bit more about that interaction in our Star Trek Las Vegas recap. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you definitely should because we had a great chat with her about LGBTQ IAP representation in the fandom and just, you know, how Star Trek espoused ideals of diversity and that fans need to do better at embracing that. All right. So one thing I do just quickly want to touch on, though, because this came up at Star Trek Las Vegas is um, this idea that she got all the credit for something that she did as a partnership with John Trimble. And I thought that we should talk about this because we are also doing an episode that's focused on her, although John has a very, I would say, definitely an equal role in the interview. So you'll get to hear from him, which I think is really cool. He was also a very, very cool person. They were both just so sweet and so humble. Yeah, but the two of them, especially Bijo, were very much credited for the campaign to save Star Trek, the mail-in campaign that saved the original series from cancellation between the second and third seasons. And um, that's the thing that primarily she's gotten credit for, even though John had a very key role. The 
reason she says that happened was that at the time that feminism was really in its infancy and the media was really a lot more interested in this story about a housewife who was taking a stand about a TV show versus some guy named John. There's a couple interviews where she talks about, well, obviously my name, B. Joe, being short for Betty Joe, is a lot more memorable than John. And the fact that it was like this, this housewife who had small children who was you know, campaigning for, to save Star Trek was a lot more interesting to the media at the time. Did any of this, was any of this like a surprise or did you have any thoughts on this dynamic? I just really appreciated that both of them were very aware of the importance of the other's contribution. I thought it was, it was very sweet. And again, they were both very aware of what was going on and they both cared about the other getting credit where credit was due. That's what I got anyway. Yeah, I mean, she's the name I think that we've heard in fandom for for several years until very recently. But if you actually look at the interviews that she's done over the years, she tries really hard to to say this is not just me. You know, it it was both of them. And it's just she's the one who who got the headlines and the story around it, I guess, just kind of grew. And you know, I honestly, I can't say I'm surprised by it because her reasoning makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, that's exactly what the media would do. They want the punchier headline. But I'm I'm glad that over the last several years that uh, John is getting mentioned, that they're being mentioned together, and that they're both getting credit for what they did. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm glad that he does get to play an important role in this episode, but I still think it's fair that we focus on Bijo because we're doing a series on women in fandom. And um, Bijo did also have some things that she spearheaded on her own, like mm-hmm. writing the Star Trek Concordance, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, but just to go back to the very beginning, um, a couple biographical notes for those of you who are less familiar. Bijo Trimble was born Betty Joanne Conway in 1933 in Holdenville, Oklahoma. And honestly, I did not know any of this stuff until I looked it up this weekend. Uh, <laughs> she was a WAVE, which was a U.S. Naval Reserve Women's Reserve member. Uh, WAVE stands for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. And she was stationed at Naval Service Great Lakes when she saw an ad for the 10th World Science Fiction Convention and decided to attend. So that was 1952. There she met Robert Bloch and Harlan Ellison and other main uh, sort of big sci-fi authors of the day. Both of whom went on to write for Star Trek at different points. Yes. And uh, she says that Harlan Ellison proposed to her then and <laughs> at least once afterwards. Well, who can blame him? <laughs> gotta try, you know? Yeah, it's... <laughs> And she actually told that story backstage at Star Trek Las Vegas before our panel. And she was telling us that Harlan Ellison proposed to her a couple of times and that she really admired his work and she considers him a friend. But in the end, she said no. And she's glad that she instead ended up with John because she said that John is a man who's very kind and has a really good sense of humor. And the the advice she gave us was to look for a partner that's someone who's kind with a sense of humor. So that's good advice. It was really sweet. (laughs) I think you could do worse than getting marriage advice from that that pair. They seem very happy together. Can we just bask in having gotten relationship advice from B. Joe and John? Because that's pretty great. Oh, for (laughs) sure. Um, So she did art and cartooning and was recruited to do illustration for science fiction fanzines. And she says that she met John under Forrest J. Ackerman's piano at a party. (laughs) Which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. John was in the Air Force, so they connected over their military involvement and obviously shared love of sci-fi. And also before Star Trek, she helped revive a flagging Los Angeles science fiction society in the late 1950s. In 1958, she put together the Worldcon Futuristic Fashion Show at the uh, 16th World Science Fiction Convention and ran a couple in 1966 and she also directed art shows for conventions, so generally seems like she was a pretty fun person to be around at a sci-fi convention. She still is. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, it goes back uh, more than 50 years, so that's that's pretty cool. So um, 
Her initial involvement with Star Trek, she talks about in the interview, so we won't go too much into it, but wanted to just touch on some of the things that she did in case there's areas we wanted to elaborate on, um, such as managing Lincoln Enterprises. The only thing I had to add um, was that in the These Are the Voyages, there's more stuff about Lincoln Enterprises and sort of the tension that there was between Majel and Bijo. So Bijo and John basically started Lincoln Enterprises, the merchandising arm of Star Trek, and uh, Majel ended up kind of taking over and Bijo felt that she had really not very good ideas. So there was some tension there and definitely recommend checking out These Are the Voyages if you want to read more about that. But let's, um, so without further ado, we will present to you our interview from Star Trek Las Vegas with John and Bijo, and then we will get back to some notes after that. So enjoy. Hi, we have here at Star Trek Las Vegas, Jera, me, that's me, <laughs> Sue. Hi. And Grace. Hey, everybody. And we're here today interviewing Bijo and John Trimble, the fans who organized the campaign to save Star Trek and have been hugely influential in our fandom. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Happy to do it amid the noise here. <laughs> So um, we wanted to actually ask you, like, how you got into Star Trek in the first place. Maybe I'll start with John. Okay. We have, we were longtime science fiction fans, and a, a lot of what we saw visually in movies in the 50s and, and early 60s was okay, but nothing really spectacular with a few exceptions. Uh, Day the Earth Stood Still, Destination Moon, uh, Forbidden Planet. But uh, beyond those, not a whole lot, and most of what we'd seen had been disappointing. Um, and here comes this television show that's presenting a positive future, uh, real people doing real things, uh, and and presenting a positive future and it really resonated and obviously it resonated with a lot of other fans too and we met Gene Roddenberry at a uh, uh, star, uh, world science fiction convention uh, just before it was aired and uh, uh, I did him a favor and that's how we got acquainted so that's that's really interesting so Yesterday on our panel, um, Bijo and I were on a panel on women in Star Trek. You talked a little bit about what science fiction conventions were like before Star Trek, and how do you feel like Star Trek changed science fiction fandom? Well, I think it actually made it okay for women uh, and, and girls, little girls even, to uh, admit they read, hello, and that they read <laughs> science fiction. And, and that they, because, you know, that was important to a lot of people. And then they, because uh, uh, you would end up with, with you know, girls who had learned to play dumb. You know, and, and that exists still in some societies that, you know, you can't, you can't sound intelligent. Well, you're in a society here where that's sounding intelligent is a plus. And admitting that you read, and admitting that you want to go into the sciences, and I think Star Trek influenced that enormously. And by the way, that made Gene very proud. He loved reading letters from people who were going to go into the sciences, who were studying to be astronauts, who were, you know, all of this. And that that Star Trek was one of the influences on it. He just loved that. So how did you end up getting involved with the campaign to save Star Trek and really spearheading that? It's although my, my dad was one of the letter writers in that campaign. Uh, he's 85 now. Um, he has had the same birthday as Leonard Nimoy, so he's very proud of that as well. Um, so interested uh, how that came about. Okay. We had, because of the favor that... that Bijo had done for, and we'd done for Gene at the convention, he'd invited us anytime we were in Hollywood to phone and we could come out to the studio. So we had visited the set a, a number of times, and it had been a very up sort of thing. The crew was 
cheerful. The actors were cheerful. Everything was really wonderful. And then we, this one time we were there, they were filming a scene from the Deadly Years, and the whole atmosphere changed. It was very down. Just almost the, the totally opposite what it had been before. And we asked around on, with the crew and so on, and we couldn't get any concrete answers to what was wrong. So we did what you do when you really want to find out what's going on on a set. We went over to craft services and asked them. They know everything. Mm-hmm. They and know all the backstage gossip, trust me, you know, so, yeah. So the craft services says, oh, well, it's not official yet, but, yeah, the words come down, the show's going to be canceled at the end of this season. And we knew from talking to people and knowing people in the industry that if a show didn't have third season, a third season back in the mid-60s, it wouldn't be syndicated. And it would die. So we had to leave, and we're driving back to Oakland, where we lived at the time, going up the Central Valley in California before freeways. <laughs> and we're t- talking about this and reflecting on it, and I said to her, there ought to be something we could do about that. That was throwing down the gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, besides that being something of a challenge, uh, really we did. You know, we began to feel we should do something about it. However, no one had ever done anything like this before. So we're formulating what we can do and how we can do it. We're we're working in the dark, folks. We just, you know, we're making this up as we go along. We knew at first that we had to ask Gene because if he'd thrown in the towel already. There was no sense doing this. And uh, we got we got home, we phoned Gene, and he said that he had just come out of a staff meeting and was saying if only there was a way we could reach the fans. Well, we don't know if that was exactly true, but because Gene, Gene was a good storyteller, but, you know, and um, we, yeah, we fell on his lap. We told him what we had planned, and he approved it, but we told him he couldn't help. And this is terrible because a producer is basically the the world's uh, top uh, control freak, and he um, and he really wanted to help. And I said no because Paramount, I mean uh, NBC, is definitely going to think you're involved anyway. And yes, they did, but we you know they can't be able to prove it. That's all we you know. So uh, it had to be fan run, and we we told the fans that we knew that we needed help. We needed some money. We needed stamps. And they came through like troopers. And um, then we, we used uh, not only the convention mailing list, that the convention where Gene had shown the episodes, but uh, Big Howard uh, 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 DeVore was a, a book dealer at the time. And, of course, everything he did was on uh, not online but by mail order. So we had a, quite a mailing list. And then the third thing we said, well, let's use some of Star Trek's fan mail. Gene had no idea where it was. <laughs> and he kind of assumed, I guess, that the studio was answering it. No, it was stacked up in the mail room at, at Paramount. Forty bags of it. Yeah. And they wanted us to come take it all. We didn't have a house that big. So we took a couple of bags. And we all we didn't even have time to do anything but take the return address off of everything. And you know, and, and type it into labels, and uh, so that's that's what we did, and that was our mailing list. And we we uh, I I interviewed secretaries to find out what it is about a, a letter that makes them throw it away, file it in the nut file, answer it themselves, or put it across their boss's desk. And I wrote up this set of rules about that. We never wrote, by the way, a letter that you could copy. We wrote a we said write a letter, but it has to be yours. Because even then, before the internet, they knew a, a campaign like that. The churches and stuff would write in that kind of thing, you know. And so... We uh, got the addresses for NBC in New York, the headquarters. We also got some sponsors' addresses. And we gave those in the thing. And then we put on the thing, uh, on the letter. Okay, now here's what you do. You write a letter... You copy this information and send it out to ten friends and ask each of them to write a letter and ask them 
all of them to copy the letter and ask 10 friends to write a letter. And that's how we did it. Now, we, we lucked out in that uh, a couple of people picked who worked for large corporations like Xerox and IBM picked it up and put it in their, their company newsletters and Mensa picked it up and put it in their newsletter. So we had a lot of help uh, in addition to just that. And, and frankly, then we began to get stamps and money donations from all over the United States. And after a while, from the rest of the world. And people would say, you know, I don't know if it's worthwhile writing from England. Yeah, do it because we don't want, people in the United States don't want anybody else to know what we're doing, if we're doing something stupid. And so, you know, really, I mean, the government hates this when they get overseas mail. Uh, and um, uh, that and hitting them in the pocketbook. Write the sponsors. And the sponsors, best weapon you've got, then they contact the network and they're saying, we're paying good money for this time and these people are angry. Why? Why? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, I stopped doing this. And so that was a great thing. Hit them in the pocketbook every time it works. Trust me on this. And it works today. Um, we were doing all of this before the Internet. Uh, so it was all by hand. John had to go down and learn this that John had to go down and learn this brand new thing, zip codes, because the only way you could do bulk mail, and we were mailing out hundreds of letters, was to use zip codes. And, and so he had to go down, he learned the lessons, and he brought home all the books, and we sorted into boxes, and oh, you know, and, and we'd have uh, 15 or 20 other fans over at the house on weekends, uh, you know, and I'd cook something inexpensive like chili or spaghetti you know and and um, uh, the fans would bring potluck and it was really I mean it became kind of a big social thing you know it was it was really fun people would visit LA and get drawn into, <laughs> into doing and the we work had people show up at our at our uh, house with uh, a leave a Rima paper or stamps or something so we had a lot of help in that respect. Gene actually did, uh, at one point during a kind of final push, uh, uh, send over a catered lunch. He had a deli place in L.A. that sent a big uh, tray of stuff. And, 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 you know, that was acceptable. He also, he, he also uh, when, uh, when UC, um, pardon me, Caltech decided to march on NBC, we were not there. We were, we were elsewhere. And so they were doing this on their own. Well, Gene, of course, had to mix in there. And he rides his motorcycle over with his black leathers, and he thought he was disguised. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, you, you know, like, Gene, geez, you know. But, but, but you know, and... and and he's walking around with the Star Trek. And they were thrilled. They were thrilled. And, you know, harmless things like that. I mean, we marched on very first. We marched on, on a station in Oakland. KRON in San Francisco. CNBC affiliate in San Francisco. And, you know, it was just basically voicing an opinion. And we didn't have Star Trek costumes, so we wore our Society for Creative Anachronism costumes, mm -hmm. which are medieval. And, you know, we had guys with winged helmets and, and long capes and swords. <laughs> I don't know what they thought of us, you know. It just and and well, the, I, we know what they thought of us. They called the police. And the, Gene, Gene had 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 printed a bunch of Igrock Spock bumper stickers, and he sent us a bunch. So we uh, and we we passed some of the information about letters under the door because they locked the doors on us. And, <laughs> A couple of secretaries came and picked them up and took them away, <laughs> and we threw a couple of bumper stickers into, and they grabbed those and took them away. And the the San Francisco Police Department showed up and uh, checked to see what we were doing, and we told them and gave them some information, of which they kept. And uh, they said we showed them the bumper stickers, and the guy says. Go ahead and put one on the cruiser. So, <laughs> we saw that police cruiser a couple of other times in San Francisco with the Igrox Spock bumper sticker on it. So they were pretty cool. You know, it was funny because we were trying to explain ourselves. Okay, first explaining 
the SCA, which is this medieval group, and and why we were all in in garb, and then explaining that no, we weren't rioting, and we weren't even threatening these people. We were just standing outside with some signs, and um, uh, they, you know, they finally deemed us weird but harmless. <laughs> so, you know, that's okay. That's that's a good one. You know, I'll settle for weird but harmless. It was the summer of love in San Francisco, so all the hippies had shown up. They were used to weird. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and then, but it, they were, there were all of these little incidents which were kind of fun too. And and when thinking back on them, it's just you know, the, I've, I I somehow do, don't believe we did some of these cockamamie things we ended up doing. But yeah, but uh, we uh, we didn't we so we originated the the whole thing, and we had no idea it was going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. To tell you the truth, we didn't even think that the campaign was going to do what it did. We figured if we got a few hundred letters in to annoy NBC and let them know we wanted something, then that was fine. Nobody was more surprised than us when they came on with a voiceover on prime time announcing that there would be a third season, please stop writing letters. <laughs> and Aguero bought, of course, several, about 2,000 fans turned around and wrote thank you letters. But, and what we did is tell everybody to write and send the stuff in business envelopes, which they had to open because they couldn't guess whether or not it was, you know, something important. This is what they were, they were hiring people to do this. So we were costing them money. And that's another thing, you know. Hit them in the pocketbook, you get, yeah. you know. And so, um, for uh, for when they did that, we realized, holy cow, this thing has succeeded! Wow! And now look at us, fifty years later. Who knew? Absolutely. I was wondering what it was like for you in particular, being kind of in the public eye at this time. Um, you both were obviously equally involved in this campaign, but you mentioned that. The media, when they talked to you, would more was more interested in talking to you. So, what was that like? Um, not necessarily being ready for that. Yeah, it was really peculiar, and no, I wasn't ready for it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I've done some weird things in my life, but just suddenly having the news media interested was was be, you know definitely a new thing. And I kept saying, you know, well, but John, and they weren't interested in writing about John or televising John. Uh, they were interested in, in a, the, a woman because feminism was the flavor of the month at the time. They weren't taking it seriously, but all right. And so, you know, and they didn't even think that there was no way a woman with toddlers could handle this all by herself, you know. And, and they never showed up. They never bothered showing up like the fans were there or anything like that. It was just doing me. And we'd get opinions like at one point a cameraman says, well, you know, this is all pretty weird. Why would you do And I said, uh, you play baseball, you know, are you a baseball fan? You're. Can you give me the scores of baseball games from about five years ago? Yeah. And that's not strange. <laughs> but yeah, we, we ran into this, this prejudice a lot, you know. Well, why would you do this? And at one point, we had a reporter say, I love this one. Tell me, Mrs. Trimble, why does a seemingly intelligent woman like you waste all of her time on an insignificant show like Star Trek? And I said, tell me, Mr. Reporter, why is a seemingly intelligent person like you interviewing someone who was wasting her time with Star Trek? And he walked away, and his cameraman said, congratulations, you're the first person that ever shut him up. So then, segue later, there's a banquet at this particular convention, and it was a fundraiser. So, of course, he's talked his way into a free ticket, and he's only a table or two away from me. When So, this reporter's over there, you know, feeding his face for free, by the way. And um, this teacher walks up to me, and she has the concordance, my, my book. And she, and she said, would you sign this to room A? And I said, now, there's a story here, you know. And she said, well, we were all challenged... We're in a rather poor section of town. We were all challenged to raise the reading ability of our students. And I used this book. We would watch a tape of Star Trek. And when they ran across a word they did not understand, they looked it up in the concordance. 
right? And and then every at the end of the thing, they would also write a little bit about it, but using words from the concordance. I said, I think that is cool. Would you believe that some people believe that Star Trek is a total waste of time? And she said, what idiot <laughs> would do that? And all the fingers pointed at this guy. It was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the concordance and how you came about publishing oh, it. Oh, well, the concordance was actually started by a young lady named Dorothy Height, and she, uh, her entire interest in life was religion and Star Trek. <laughs> that was it. And she started making notes on just about everything she could. And I said, you know, this has got possibilities as a book. And she hands me all the cards. She has no interest in doing a book. And so... Uh, I went to Jean and I asked for scripts and for the first two seasons I got scripts. For the third one they cut me off and I had to wait a while. But then I started using the scripts and really putting in all the other editions and so on. And uh, when the book was sold, I told Dorothy about it and I said, you know, uh, from the royalties, you know, you'll get a percentage. And she said, yeah, okay, fine. And she really had no interest. I don't think she even has a copy of the book. And so, for a while, that went on, and then after a while, she's, you know, it, it really wasn't that much money anyway, and she said, oh, never mind. So, so basically, then it became my baby, and I just took it and ran with it, and uh, now, in fact, I have a young man in, um, in Colorado who is doing a lot of research on adding in all of the other TOS references from other, you know from movies and everything, and um, we're going to update it, and and we actually have a publisher sort of interested, and I'm going to have to write all of the artists because all of the artwork was done by fans, and um, uh, and add to that and so on and, and contact everybody, and I've already told Dorothy that you know I'm I'm doing this and. She said, okay. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm looking forward to the, the new edition. I think Sue had a question. Yeah, so I was wondering, you hear it a lot, I'm sure, especially this year, that you two are referred to as the fans who saved Star Trek. And I'm wondering, do you feel any pressure from that? Do you feel, like, how, what is the feeling you get when people put 50 years of franchise on your shoulders? Well, you know, we, we don't feel responsible for all of that. And so, no, it's not pressure. Uh, it's actually pleasure. We're very pleased that finally, because we've had a long dry spell here, that we're recognized and that people know the history of all of this. Because if you don't know the history, then, you know, you don't really understand the fullness of all that's going on. And for us... It's just kind of amazing that the, all of this is, you know, going on. Uh, for goodness sake, it's 50 years. And we don't feel responsible for that either. But <laughs> we do, we're very pleased that this happened. We think it's very cool. <laughs> and a little embarrassed, but mostly pleased. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't, this whole weekend, we've had people come up and say thank you and give us hugs. And that's lovely. But, but you know, we feel like, kind of overwhelmed you know and uh we we go up the the where the waiting list wait you know they're waiting to get in and you know you say hello to everybody we get stopped you know and, and it just it takes us an hour to get from here out to, to starbucks you know and um uh, uh it just it's 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 kind of wonderful it really is and we, our kids, you know, your children never take you seriously, and uh, they were beginning to anyway, and then we were invited as guests to Comic-Con, and we could get them in free. Well, okay, right away, now, all of a sudden, you know, the parent, <laughs> little cachet here, but, uh, uh, we, you know, it's fun. It's, we've enjoyed it very much. Uh, what would you say, other than, of course, your contributions and the contributions of other fans, what do you think is the reason that we are still celebrating Star Trek today and that we're looking forward to more movies and a new TV series? Well, again, it's good, serious, adult science fiction. It still presents this positive future. It's, it still resonates in the same way that it did in the, in the late 60s with a different audience but we're still looking at uh, an outside world that that has way too many challenges and is not 
exactly going the way we'd like to see it going. Hopefully that will change in November <clears throat> to some extent. Uh, you know, we've got this historic chance. Let's not blow it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's, it's still doing the same things it was doing in 1966, but in a whole different way. And it's it's still is as exciting as it was then, if not more so. Yeah, this is you know the series started out with giving you messages, and the messages were like you know science fiction can disguise a today's problem with a future in a futuristic manner, and that's that that resonated too because the other shows had no depth; they weren't offering anything like that. They were not offering family, which, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that that still resonates. So what do you think the you, the two of you that started the letter-writing campaign would have to say about you now, who's at 50 years of Star Trek? What do you think the you that started that would think of this? Well, I think first, the, my first question would be, are you, are you crazy? Uh, <laughs> but the second one would be, simply, wow, I mean... There was no way anybody could have predicted this. Uh, you know, it, if anybody tells you they could have figured out that this would happen, they're lying in their teeth. And yeah, how that affects us on this on this plane is looking back with the people we were. It is still sheer amazement. You know, I mean, this this took a this took a turn that none of us understood, and and here we are. Well, um, I... Uh, yeah, we, we could not in the wildest uh, dreams have, have predicted what's happened. It's, it's both surprising, exciting, and, and, and uh, bewildering all at the same time. It's just, it is absolutely amazing, and there is no way in 1967 that we could have envisioned this. I'm glad it's here, and I think it's wonderful, and it's just, it's its really exciting, and the fact that our efforts had something to do with it is just very, very gratifying. So, before I let you go, I do just want to make sure that you also get credit for uh, starting Lincoln Enterprises, which was basically the first Star Trek merchandising. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you started that. Well, we had already run two mail order, little, very tiny mail order companies, so we knew how to do that, and nobody at Paramount did. And so, when we realized that the film clips I was scavenging off the floor, literally of the cutting room, were selling like crazy, that fans really wanted these, we went to Gene and we said, We think there's merchandising opportunities here. And everybody sort of went, Yeah, well, really? You know, and. We said, you know, we, I mean, the fans really want the film clips. What else would they like? And uh, if we start a company, we'd have to start a company with everything flat because we can't afford boxes. But, yeah, we could put something together. So Gene said, okay, rented a small office in Hollywood, and um, we got all of the mail sacks, and uh, we let everybody know that we were, uh, we were starting this thing, and it took off like a house of fire. It really did. We didn't sell the film clips. To be what we did was we gave them away to friends, and they told other people about it. And suddenly there was a market, and they started selling them to people. And we thought, here's a natural, and so that's part of what led into it. Basically, then uh, uh, it was Lincoln Enterprises for a long time. Gene liked Abe Lincoln, and then it, now it's Roddenberry.com. Uh, yeah. So, and we look at the whole uh, vendor's room and we think, wow, I mean, really, we need a piece of that action, right? I mean, come on. You know, so. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would not oppose that. So, um, and at the time that the original series was on the air, did you ever get a chance to interact with D.C. Fontana or any of the other women yes, behind the scenes absolutely. particularly? Yeah, we did. And, and there, were, there were actually quite a few people behind the scenes out realized that Gene himself was a feminist. He really liked well, he liked women for one thing, but I mean he really liked putting women in jobs. He was the one who removed uh, Dorothy from a typing pool uh, at Universal, I think it was, and 
brought her over and gave her a job with a lot more responsibility. And he would do that. Uh, he would he would put people in, uh, and 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 Gene Kuhn also believed in this kind of thing. So basically, uh, they had, uh, you know, there were women in. Uh, Costuming. There were women assistants in in uh, in makeup. Uh, certainly, hair. One of the Westmore girls, and um, the Westmore family is a vast family. And uh, you know, it's so it was uh, uh, something we met women el- everywhere. Dorothy was uh, uh, one of these peripatetic people. By the way, she she uh, after Star Trek went off the air, she taught writing. And I took one of her classes. It was very good. And she was a very good critic of, of your writing, too. But it was really, really kind of great. So, uh, and, and the women were all, you know, uh, very ambitious. Andy yourself was uh, producing movies, you know. And uh, so I like that sort of thing in women. So thank you so much for your time, John and Bijo. Have a fabulous rest of the convention. It was great talking to you today. Thank you for interviewing us and having us on your program. We, we really lo- enjoyed this. Thanks so much. You did great. That was a super cool experience. I don't know about you guys, um, but it was, I, I would say that chatting with them and even just yeah, being in their presence was definitely a highlight of convention for me. Definitely. Absolutely. I'm I'm so glad that that they talked about the logistics of running this campaign as mm-hmm. well cuz I think sometimes, you know, in 2016 we forget how difficult and how much actual paper <laughs> you have to go through to do something like that. I mean, copying mailing lists, making photocopies, stuffing envelopes, that's a lot of work. That's time intensive right there and that really really pulls it forward how much of a labor of love the whole thing was. Especially when you don't have modern communication tools nearly Mm -hmm. as much. I think newer fans forget what it was like to be without the internet when it comes to organizing things and how invaluable it is. I mean, think about how how many fan things are now done by hashtags, you know? And back in the day, they did not have a quick communication tool like that to reach you know, the entirety of the Star Trek fandom. But on the flip side, a hashtag doesn't force a studio to open an envelope. That's true. true. You know, so as big as a hashtag campaign gets, it's not going to have the actual bottom line, the effect on the bottom line as forcing someone to open hundreds of thousands of envelopes every day. (laughs) Yeah, but they also do like the online petitions where they give you the chance to sign a petition and then also the address so you can send in your mail. Like I'm just like the communication is there where it wasn't before. Right. For sure. I just think that like the lesson that I took from it was more about planning your campaign because, you know, she talks about what's our goal. Well, our goal is to get them to read these letters. So she interviews secretaries to say what will actually make you open this letter and then what gets you to put it in front of your boss's eyes. And, you know, so they were saying write original letters. And I still think that, you know, if you write an individual email, that's going to have more power than the automated email from change.org. So if you can get people to tailor their things so that the the decision makers that you're directing it to are actually going to read it, that's how you reach the goal of your campaign. So I really enjoyed it as well. I thought it was really cool to hear about all the work that went in. It was really like community organizing 101. There were people coming over and cooking. How beautiful was that also? Yeah. Just hearing all these people coming together for it. Yeah. And these different groups starting their own rallies and they really embraced these diverse groups organizing things in their own way. And I thought it was just a really I love cool model. that they didn't have Star Trek costumes. So they just them in their the SCA, SCA costumes. costumes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great. I love that mental image so much. <laughs> it, it just makes me so happy every time I think about it. So one thing we talked about a tiny bit in the interview, but we didn't really get super into depth in was on her role in the early Star Trek conventions and reading Star Trek Lives. They talk about her as a key volunteer at that first convention the first convention in New York, just really pulling, helping pull things together when they just were not prepared for the numbers of people that showed up. And it's 
interesting to see kind of how conventions have changed. We didn't talk about this too much in the interview, but I think that there's a bit of a case to be made that they've become more corporatized and also more male-centric. Yes. (laughs) And that's partly why we're doing this series is that like we go to these conventions and still like the stages are very male-dominated. What's really sad is when we get that level of erasure of people being like, well, it's always been a guy thing. It's like, no. No. That's not at all true. I think there is a very stark difference between the the corporate-run conventions and the fan-run conventions. And there are way more corporate-run conventions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, those are, those are the official ones. Those are the ones with, with network backing. But, you know, I'm just back from DragonCon and looking at the 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 fan tracks and the the things that I the the organizations that I work with when I'm down there almost all of my panels were were women dominated actually more women than men on the panels and almost all of the track directors I work with are women in that fan run community and that is the 30th year of Dragon Con and I think it's when you get to the conventions where their goal is to market to you and get you to buy things, it's the same thing as the the people who are, you know, putting the commercials on the sci-fi network and assume that everyone watching needs Viagra. Like, <laughs> you know? So, and another thing that we asked Bijo about in the interview was the Star Trek Concordance, which I don't think we really explained what it was, but she sort of explains that she compiled this book from Doris the Heights notes that ended up being kind of a I just read through it and it's kind of a glossary slash encyclopedia slash episode guide slash collection of fan art for the original series and the animated series and it's Aww. fabulous. And she also because she was using <laughs> scripts from the studios, there's all these details that I hadn't really seen in other reference books. So I would still say that even with, you know, these are the voyages and all these other books that have come out since, I still think it's a really essential reference for Star Trek fans. And this is something that Bijo really took on. She was supported by John and he, you know, was helping take care of the kids and do cooking and stuff during this time that she was basically obsessed with creating this reference book. And it it was a really huge thing in fandom, especially, you know, think about if you're a fanfic writer and you need to look up how to spell a character name or something like that. It's very cool. Has anyone else taken a look at the concordance? I think the coolest thing is the original cover, which has the built-in wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seriously, like yeah. that helps you locate the episode you're looking for, so you can turn right to it. It's pretty cool. I want one. Yes, it is great. Um, and apparently, like she said in the interview, they're doing a new edition, so that's really exciting. I, I loved going through and looking at the fan art. That's some of my favorite things to look at it that was produced during that time. So it's cool that she incorporated that. It wasn't just, you know, all the facts from canon that's absolutely there. Like she's not including fanfic, uh, fanfic canon, I guess, in her episode descriptions or anything. But there's, um, but they still, there's still some fan art to show that fans are contributing to this fandom. So that was cool. All right. So also, we failed to mention in the interview that she had a cameo. Um, I think John was in it too, in the, uh, they were science mm-hmm. division crew members in the recreation deck assembly scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So that's cool. And I can't find too much detailed information on this, but apparently she also played a part in the campaign to name one of the first space shuttles, NASA's first space shuttles, Enterprise. Oh, cool. Yeah, because I think there was a big letter writing campaign around that as well. Mm-hmm. So that would make so sense. So let this be a lesson to all you fans out there. Dreams do come true. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, they thought, well, if we don't get a third season, we're not getting into syndication. But they didn't really foresee the next decades after that where there would be all these spinoffs <laughs> and there's still being spinoffs and movies. Um, but I think they articulated really well why that has happened around Star Trek. Yeah. They love what they love, and they know how to articulate what they love. Absolutely. So post Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, she continued writing articles for sci-fi magazines. And um, I did also find an interview that talked about what she thought Gene Roddenberry might think about Deep Space Nine. In this interview, she said 
I feel that Gene might have come to like DS9 had he lived to see it. There might have been some changes. Majel recently said that Gene Roddenberry would have hated the war in DS9, but frankly, I'm amazed that she cannot see the same theme in much of what Gene did, including his recent discovery of Earth Final Conflict. The only reason there were not full battles in early Trek is lack of funds to pull it off and lack of technology to show it. Otherwise, Gene Roddenberry would have certainly added it. He knew what the audience liked. So, any thoughts on that? I definitely agree. I think there's, I'm obviously biased as a Deep Space Nine fan, but I think there's a lot to like there. And I think it really is a high concept uh, continuation of what Star Trek was initially. Mm -hmm. Albeit a darker one. Yeah. Okay, so I also didn't know what the Society for Creative Anachronism was. Did you guys know what it was, Jara? (laughs) I know! Yeah! Yeah. SCA, man! (laughs) And me. <laughs> you dress up in your Renfair gear and you screw around in the park. <laughs> How do you not know about that? Yeah, it's um, the Society for Creative Anachronism. It's, I think the easiest way to explain it to, to nerds might be that it's sort of like the 501st, but if you wore Renaissance gear instead of Stormtrooper armor. <laughs> These were the original badass LARPers. Yeah, and you, you get together and you have actual battles. They're not choreographed and you can win and you can fake die. So there are houses, right? And every every house has a head of the household. And there are all these battles and things and whoever wins the battle determines, you know, if the head of the household gets a title and there are, are big events like Penzik, which is like a giant war uh, between two kingdoms and whoever wins at Penzik is king, I think. And then if you're king so many times, you're, you become a knight. And then if you're king again, you become a duke. And <laughs> it's, it's nerdy, LARPing, renaissance era fun and you hit people with sticks. And 80% of the fun of it is the creative aspect of the creative anachronism. Yeah. Yes. You can make excuses for why you have an Evian bottle with your costume. Because it's creative! <laughs> I'm sure I did not explain that accurately, but um, SCA.org will. <laughs> Amazing. Well, the Trimbles have been longtime members of the SCA. Uh, Bijo received the Big Heart Award in 1964, which I think is a community service award. And in her persona of Flavia Beatrice Carmignani... I hope I pronounced that right. She also received the Order of the Laurel, an art award. And Bijo and John are also members of the SCA's Order of the Pelican for service and were Baron and Baroness of the SCA's Barony of the Angels, which is the Los Angeles chapter from September 2008 to January 2012. She has also received the International Costumers Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. Translation, they're a pretty big deal. Yeah. Sorry, I did just find on Mental Floss a little bit more information about the the space shuttle thing. So apparently, according to to Mental Floss, she did organize it. And uh, that was a campaign writing directly to the president. And the estimates here are that they received somewhere between 10 and 40,000 letters urging the name change from Constitution to Enterprise. But some estimates go as high as 200,000 letters, which seems really intense. But apparently, Ford, President Ford eventually spoke with, with NASA chief James Fletcher and said, you know, I'm a little partial to the name Enterprise. And so he, he finally acquiesced after a significant number of letters. That's awesome. So these days, Bijo and John live in Southern California, and until 2015, they were running a business they started called Griffin Dye Works and Fiber Arts, which is a big hobby of hers. And yeah, so these days, they're also, they're doing the convention circuit pretty big time, like they talked about in the interview, and we are all benefiting from the awesomeness of that. Definitely. So is there anything else to add? Any final thoughts on the impact of Bijo Trimble on our fandom and how cool she is generally. I was really surprised when I found out we were going to be meeting up with her. I knew what she had done, but I hadn't really heard anything about her as a person. And I was just blown away away by how sweet and humble she and John were. They were just wonderful, excited, and just so happy to be there and happy to share their stories. It was such a treat. She was very warm and welcoming and funny. And it was a pleasure to meet her and John, who was also has a very nice humor to him. 
Mm-hmm. She was right. He does. He was sweet with a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's great that, you know, especially in with the 50th anniversary, there's so much attention being paid towards, towards this campaign again. I think any big anniversary will do that. But they just kept saying to, to anyone who came up to thank them, they just kept saying, we're just fans. And we're fans of them for being fans. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just, just really sweet that even after all this time and the the significant impact that they have had on this fandom, the fact that we probably wouldn't be here if, if that letter writing campaign didn't exist. Absolutely. And they're just like, we're just fans. We just did something because we loved it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there then. Sue, where else can people find you on the internet? You can find me over at anomalypodcast.com or on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank and partially back on Tumblr at GraceHeartStarTrek. And Andy? You can find me on Twitter. I'm live tweeting my first time through Star Trek under at First Time Trek. And I'm Jarrah, and you can find me on Twitter at Jarrah Penguin, that's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin, or on Tumblr at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. Thanks so much for listening.